Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Katie Gamanji, cloud platform engineer at American Express and TOC member of the CNCF. Katie has recently been writing and talking about the building blocks of developer experience with interacting with Kubernetes clusters, from the kubectl or kubectl that we all know and love, to other GUI-driven tooling and more. One of her fantastic recent blog posts discussed the use of kubectl UI wrappers like K9s and Octant, in addition to covering cloud platform web-based portal approaches using ClickOps, and also YAML-driven approaches such as GitOps. I was keen to hear Katie's analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of each approach and also understand her recommendations as to what to use and when. Additionally, I've learned a lot from Katie recently around the evolving cluster API, and I was keen to understand how this is becoming integrated with the Kubernetes developer experience. And for example, I was keen to understand, is the tooling mature enough to allow us to treat Kubernetes clusters as cattle and not pets? If you like what you're here today, I would definitely encourage you to pop over to our website, that's www.getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge stack, our open source Ambassador API gateway, and also our CNCF hosted telepresence tool too. So hi, Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Daniel. Happy to be here. Could you briefly introduce yourself for the listeners, please, and share a recent career highlight? Yes. So my name is Katie Gamanji, and I am one of the cloud platform engineers for American Express. I've joined American Express six months ago, so quite recently. And I am part of the team that aims to transform the current platform by embracing the cloud native principles and making the best use of the open source tools. In terms of my career highlights, quite recently, I've been elected as one of the TOC for the CNCF. So... This has been quite a new and quite grand event <laughs> in my in my career development, I would say. Being part of the CNCF as a TOC is, I think, quite a good opportunity to really influence and leverage how the CNCF landscape should be constructed. So we have the power to leverage different projects and to move them through the pipeline all the way to graduations, such as, for example, quite recently, Helm graduated or of course, Kubernetes, which has been graduated for quite a while now. Brilliant, brilliant. You got so many highlights, Katie. QCon keynoting, <laughs> you're keynoting like some other stuff online. Like you got so many to choose from, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'm enjoying it though. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, brilliant. So first, the traditional question in the podcast is around developer experiences and developer loops. So that capability of being able to rapidly have an idea, code, test, deploy, release, and verify. Now I ask folks to share their worst developer experience. You don't have to name names, protect the guilty and the innocent, right? But can you share your worst developer experience? Oh, I think I've had quite a few bad experiences when it comes to uh, deploying an application and troubleshooting an application. And I think that's uh, that's why actually I'm in this industry and I want to improve all of this methodology around deployment. So I think one of the, I wouldn't say the worst, but quite quite generic was when we would like to deploy an application for our pipelines or a team would like to deploy their application for our pipelines. Unfortunately, we had verticals when it comes to, for example, networking and security and the CI and CD, that was all uh, divided across different teams. It wasn't one unified manner. So what it actually happens if something would, for example, fail at the networking level in the pipeline, imagine the stress to actually understanding why it failed. As an end user, you don't really understand that. So you have to go through every single team for so many point of contacts to mm. potentially troubleshoot and debug your application. 
And I think that's definitely the worst. What I'm saying is the worst. Sometimes it can take days, <laughs> and it's it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very um, overwhelming. And I think that's uh, definitely one of the the worst DX that we can provision for any kind of engineers. And that's why, as I mentioned, I'm in um, I'm in this industry in this area of uh, technology where we can really close the gap between all of these functionalities, mm. but at the same time, bring automation around them, bring transparency around them. So the power would be with the developers. They, of course, they would need to be upskilled, but they would have an understanding of how to troubleshoot and connect to the application and how to properly debug it and just reach us when they need to. So yeah, that's my motivation why I'm, uh, why I'm in this position. But when I started in this area, it was that Pretty much one day per team. Let's debug this. What's happening? <laughs> yeah. Something I've chatted to you in the past, Katie, around this notion of like self-service and end-to-end delivery. What I heard you say there is like they're really important, right? We as engineers mm. need that. If you're doing platform and I'm a developer, I need to be able to interact enough with the platform to get my app deployed. Um, but I also need to have that end-to-end responsibility. Otherwise, like you say, stuff gets lost and they've got all these handoffs, all this communication, right? Yes, I completely agree with this. The focus always when we develop any infrastructure, any platform, it should always be on the developers. We build a platform for, I think I mentioned this idea before, but we build a platform for our customers. Our customers are Mm. the developers. And we really need to tailor whatever products and tooling we we introduce to their needs. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to build it in-house. If Well, sometimes it's the case, sometimes it's not. But if we get a product off the shelf, we really need to think about what is important for our developers. Is it actually going to improve the experience throughout? Is it actually going to be benefiting them to have a better insight of how the application is deployed? So from that perspective, mm-hmm. it's it's all about the developers should be always at the center when it comes to any DevOps model, in my, well, topology, in my, my perspective. But it's, it's definitely leveraging further rather than blocking. There is never uh, a situation, there should be, never be a situation where a developer should be blocked or will be blocked because of um, the new tools or the platform components. Ideally, that's pretty much the, the state we need to get towards. Nice, Casey. Nice. I'm going to lead nicely into what you and I were chatting off mic around, your fantastic blog post recently around the building blocks of developer experience, Kubernetes evolution from CLI to GitOps. Yeah, I know we're only a young industry, right? Kubernetes has been around a few years, whatever, but you and I have both seen that evolution. It's, it's changed rapidly. So I wanted to basically I'll try and break down some of the some of the ideas within the blog post. So you mentioned like sort of, you know, from kubectl all the way through to plugins, wrappers, and then we can break down GitOps and stuff later on. But mm-hmm. what do you see as the primary use cases and advantages and disadvantages of, of something like kubectl? I think when we all, most of the time we start with Kubernetes, the first thing we do is fire up kubectl. Yes. From this perspective, I feel that it is always and generally assumed that all the engineers interacting with Kubernetes are going to be fluent in operating kubectl. kubectl. I'm going to call it kubectl. Let the discussion, uh, discussion <laughs> be in the comments about the right way to say it. But yeah, I think usually when, when you talk about Kubernetes, there are different personas we can think about. And I've identified currently maybe three groups. The first one is going to be the application developer. They focus really on the business logic. They don't necessarily need to operate with Kubernetes. However, they need to have a mindset that their application is going to be containerized. And this comes with, for example, need to build a Docker image or or some of the best practices, building the uh, readiness and liveness checks endpoints. 
stuff like that. They don't need to interact with Cube, but they need to understand how to build the application. The second persona to identify is the application operators. And these usually are the developers that interact with the cluster. And they will have an understanding of the resources in the, uh, in the cluster, how to push an application throughout different stages, how to attach different resources. Now, these two personas, usually the application developers and application operators, sometimes they overlap, but it's not usually the case. That's why I like to segregate them into two different areas. And the last group of, of users are the infrastructure operators. Now, these are going to be the admins of the cluster. They understand how to deploy the cluster, how to configure it, and of course, all the resources within the cluster as well. So from all of these personas, all of them require a different level of understanding mm -hmm. to operate with kubectl and the cluster CLI. With, again, it is wrongly assumed that everyone is going to be fluent within this tool. kubectl is actually a great tool. It's like a Swiss knife. You have more than 40 actions you can do with that. And this is associated with more than 70 flags. So you can really oh, wow. go yeah. long and yeah, long miles uh, in terms of how can you build your kubectl command? However, not everyone has that level of insight and not everyone requires that level of insight. And that's why kubectl is great to start. It's a good way to um, explore your cluster at the beginning. However, if you'd like to upscale a tool such as Kubernetes to many teams or mm -hmm. across like a big organization, you might think about ways to abstract it, ways to mm -hmm. maybe visualize it rather than doing it for a terminal. All of these um, areas obviously depends on the use case, but these are things to really have in mind when introducing a technology like Kube. Yeah, nice. It is. Well, I mean, you mentioned that mm -hmm. there. So the Kube Cutter is very easy to get started, I guess, but it's mastering it is quite challenging. I didn't even know it had that many flags, for example. I mainly like Kube Cuttle, <laughs> you know, apply and Kube Cuttle get whatever, right? But exactly. and I do start when I do start debugging, it gets more in depth. How do you think folks? If they need to, how do they go about building that knowledge? Because like you said, but maybe it's more the, the infrastructure operators persona you mentioned mm -hmm. there. I guess, is it just a case of just playing and reading the docs and learning about all the things they can do? I think it's uh, it's a matter of practicing and experiencing. The, the more advanced use cases you have for a cluster, for example, the more advancement you're going to have towards the kubectl commands as well. I think one of my favorite commands so, for example, in our production cluster, we wouldn't be able to be admin. So we had to impersonate an admin, for example, to to modify. It's not a, not a good example, for example. I'm not saying you have <laughs> to modify things live in the cluster. But when you're actually in a in an incident, for example, you really need to get into yeah. to that admin endpoint. The kubectl command would be, okay, you have to edit, for example, a deployment, and you have to this impersonation string. So you have to do it as group, which would be, for example, assuming into a GitHub, GitHub group for admins, and then you have to assume into your user as well. So that itself was a very long mm -hmm. command, just, just to do a kubectl edit, which would be quite straightforward uh, beforehand. So like things like that really kind of makes you uh, think like there is different ways to really kind of custom your, your commands for cluster. I, again, mm -hmm. It, it depends really on the use case, but I think the more advanced use cases you have, the more layers, for example, of if you want security, if you want just specific roles to access specific resources, then you get into things like, oh, we have to do impersonation for the kubectl command. Mm. How do we do that? Things like that. This is, I think it's a, a good kind of motivator to move forward and to really think if kubectl is the right way to operate mm. all the time for all developers. 
Mm. Yeah, well said, Katie. Well said on that one. Because something I, I've played around with a bit, I think I was doing some Wireshark stuff in the cluster and playing around with like sniffing network traffic. And I found this um, plugin. I've completely forgotten the name of the plugin. I'll put it in the show notes afterwards. But um, the plugin was installed using something called Crew. So I, mean, I did like mm. you know, install crew and then I installed these plugins and I was like, this is really quite cool. It kind of extended the power of Kube CTL. So I'm guessing is, is something, is that something you would recommend for folks looking to encapsulate some of their knowledge? Could they sort of take some of the complicated stuff, put it in a plugin and then expose a simpler command to the users? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, definitely something I advocate for. If you can make it simple, do it. <laughs> like there is no way to com- overcomplicate things or type, I don't know, like miles of uh, kubectl flags. So from that perspective, yes, I think plugins are quite popular within the industry and ecosystem at the moment. Some of the most widely known, I think, are kubeNS and kubectx, which allows you to change your clusters oh, or yes. yeah. yeah, or allows you to change your namespaces within the cluster to, to defaults. Um, as well, kubectl tail has been quite popular and which allows you to stream a collection of logs from a collection of pods. Usually you do oh, get logs. Yeah. Usually you do get logs from a pod. However, mm. with tail, you'd be able to do get logs on the deployment level. So all the pods, you'll be able to see the, the latest output with that. So the plugins, they really make it easier for us to aggregate some of the commands together and to simplify mm. the user experience. And you've you've mentioned crew. Now crew is a plugin to install other plugins within, yeah. <laughs> within Kubernetes. <laughs> so I've, I've mentioned these plugins, and over the time, there has been a few patterns discovered in the, in the community. And there was a need to uh, really curate and index all of these plugins, but more importantly, to distribute them in a centralized manner. And that's why Crew, it's actually important. And that's what mm-hmm. actually took shape and why it's, um, why it's a good tool for kubectl. And with Crew, what it actually offers is easy install of uh, available plugins. So currently, I think there's more than 90 plugins available. You just do crew install, for example, kubetail, bomb, and you have the command. But more importantly, with crew, you don't really need to install anything else. The your plugins are going to be consumed for kubectl. So it's a way to further extend kubectl rather than change it. It's in addition to all the actions you can do now, you can do other actions as well, and mm. you can write them. And this is where plugins are actually quite important. And one thing I want to mention about the plugins as well, they can be written in any language. So whatever you want to do with Cube, write it in your favorite language and just make it a plugin and then it's going to be consumed anywhere. And if you want to distribute it uh, to a wider community, then Crew is going to be the tool. Interesting. So how does that work under the hood, Katie? Does it compose to like a Docker file or... Because if I write in Go, if I write in Python, like your laptop may not have that installed, for example. How does that work? So with Crew itself, what it actually does, to distribute a plugin for Crew, you will require a CRD, which they will actually manage. So the CRD itself, it has two areas of configuration. The first one is going to be informative. The second one is going to be on a guide how to be, how to install that plugin. So the informative part is going to have the version of your plugin, short and long descriptions, things which are going to be making are going to be helpful for the user to, to interact with the plugin. It's quite important to mention that here you can have like help messages and so forth. Mm, if you have a more complex plugin, then you can have different flags or whatever comes in the package, and you can really give an explanation to that. And the second part of the the CRD is the guides to install. Now, some of the plugins, of course, you can write them in every single language. However, they might be 
targeted for specific operating systems. So if you run a queue, for example, on Windows, or if you run it on uh, Linux or Mac OS, it doesn't matter really, but you really can choose to say, okay, my, my plugin works securely or 100% of the time on this operating system. So you can choose that. The second stage is gonna be actually pointing to a zipped file of your plugin. So usually if your plugin is gonna be in GitHub, is just going to point at the release itself, which is going to be zipped. And crew underneath the hood just does an unzip operation. It will extract the binary. You can actually point to the right binary. Gotcha. So it extracts the binary. It's quite a lengthy explanation here. <laughs> important to mention the steps. So extract the binary, and the binary itself is then put on your local system, uh, local file system. And with the plugins in kubectl, there are two requirements. The first one, it should be prefixed, the name of the file should be prefixed by kubectl. And the second one, it should be placed in one of the binary folders within your path environmental variable. And once it's there, kubectl by default will identify the plugin and run it. So underneath the hood, it's quite a lengthy explanation, as I mentioned. There is, uh, <laughs> uh, I, do, I, do, I do demos about this. So if that's going to be easier for, for the listeners to, to understand the, the process. But uh, yeah, once, the crew itself is pretty much downloading a your binary or executable mm -hmm. and put it on a file system with the right name, with the right path, and kubectl is going to pick it up. That's kind of a nutshell explanation. <laughs> no, thanks, Katie. I, to be honest, I never thought about this, right? I like so it kind of mm -hmm. makes sense. The binaries. I suddenly thought when you mentioned like multiple languages, I think I've only ever seen plugins written in Go, and obviously mm -hmm. you know, use columns or binary. And I suddenly thinking, how does Python work? Because I've had much fun over the years with different Python versions, right? Different, you know, mm -hmm. when I was installing exactly. it, and I, I was just just curious about that. <laughs> I'm yeah, going great. controversial here. My demo is actually a shell script, so <laughs> I can Ooh. make a plugin from a shell. <laughs> controversial ideas here. We go <laughs> oh awesome well, like bash programming always a winner right <laughs> oh mm, let's say that <laughs> <laughs> yes well said well said i wanted to move on to wrappers now because i was working for your blog when we say wrappers for interacting with kubernetes is it kind of this notion of wrapping kubectl or is it more in depth than that Mm, I think there is a reason for why I call them wrappers rather than portals and dashboards. I was really thinking, um, because portal and dashboards, they are so different across when it comes to, to visualizing uh, mm -hmm. Kubernetes resources, and all of them have different functionalities. But what it actually does underneath, I mean, even in my previous company, Condé Nast, we wanted to develop a dashboard for, or a point of presence for all our clusters, and we had to write it from, uh, from scratch. That was our mm. choice. But what it actually does underneath is just interacting with uh, the API server and just gets resources. Mm -hmm. So underneath the hood, it's still a very similar way of interacting with the cluster. Usually when I'm talking about the WAP wrappers, I refer to any tooling that provides an operational state of the cluster. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, usually a graphical representation as well. So it's going to be a portal or it's going to be a dashboard, a terminal. There are tools which provide ways to integrate the cluster for your terminal. I don't mean kubectl, it's actually a UI in the terminal. It's going very uh, old, old school style, uh, but it's quite a popular tool as well. <laughs> so from, from that perspective, it's more about how can you visualize a cluster. But underneath that, what's actually happening, it's usually kubectl get commands, mainly. Most of mm -hmm. these dashboards are read-only, so they just get the information. And some of them go the extra mile to provision uh, a way to delete a cluster, so delete button or a scale button, or even a port forward. And this is something which is provisioned by Octane, for example. And that's, that's mm, actually right. quite cool. Because for a portal, 
you can view application in the UI. Well, it actually ports forwards the application, provides you with the link, and you'll be able to, to visualize that straight away. So instead of you actually typing QTTL port forward, uh, understanding what's your internal and external mm, port. Yeah, yeah. You just do one click and you actually see your application. But that's usually the extent of um, operations it does. It's quite basic, but what it really focuses, uh, the focus is placed on is um, a graphical representation, as mentioned before. Nice. And that's why I call it wrappers, because it's um, usually a wrapper about kubectl commands, a visual wrapper in a way. Yeah. Mm, I like it. I, can, uh, I definitely think. Folks I work with, Dedua, some of the customers, particularly folks that are perhaps they don't want to get into the nitty gritty of Kubernetes. Having a UI on top is essential. Yeah, some way of interacting. Do Do you think the current solutions that I bumped into Octant? I was chatting to Brian Lyles uh, a few weeks mm-hmm. ago, and he's you know obviously uh, working uh, very hard on that tool amongst many other folks as well. Do you think tools like Octant are ready for the prime time for like the uh, you know a, a typical developer? The answer to that actually, I think. It's definitely a better place to start. I've been exploring the, the area quite some time now. Octant has been it's been open source quite recently, and I think it's got to a very stable state. It's been developed mainly to be used by the SRE team in the VMware company. Yeah. So they have a very strong motivation to make that operational <laughs> and uh, you, know, you can actually navigate for it and so forth. But what I really like about Octant, it really provides um, a good way to explore a cluster. So for example, as an application developer, well, application operator, I know there's Kubernetes, but I don't want to interact with Kubernetes through through the CLI. With Octant, I can I have a finite amount of actions I can do in a portal. So I can go through for different things. So for example, you can you can understand what is a deployment, what's a pod, you can understand there is a cluster and there is not an, under the cluster. And this is all because the, the dashboard is very well organized. Mm. Another good thing about Octant, which I really like, is that they show a resource and any associated resources as well. So for example, mm. when you have a pod, it's not just the pod. I'm actually on top of that, you have a replica set. Then you have a deployment. Usually with every single pod, you have a service account associated. And that's just a very basic setup. Um, sometimes you can have configuration maps, volumes, secrets, ingress. Yeah, yeah. It, it can go the entire mile. But with Octant, you can see all of this in one view with like hours and everything. Mm-hmm. And it can really show like really, it's a good, very good visualizer of, okay, my resource is not just the pod, it's all of these components. but it's so nicely abstracted that I don't really need to think about that. It's somewhere yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, it's somewhere there, but I have the chance to customize any of them if I want to. So in terms of the tooling nowadays, I think Octant is a good tool. Uh, and mainly because I was talking about a developer first, I really think they they nailed this quite, quite mm. well. Like it's really a good tool to use by all the personas I've mentioned before. In terms of the, let's talk the cool tools, uh, there is K-Nights <laughs> as well, which is a terminal yeah. UI. Of course. Terminal UIs are, are amazing. What it actually leverages, it's actually a wrapper around all the kubectl commands. This is the only tool which does that at the moment, which I found. So what it actually allows for developers is to navigate for your cluster for different pods by using your arrow keys. So that's a different way of interacting. Quite a, I would say cool. I'm not sure if that's a good word to <laughs> use, but it's a cool tool to use. And of course, there has been um, a lot of uh, tools which are, are to be installed, but 
they have a paid version for it, such as yeah. Lens, for example, just a Kubernetes mm. IDE. Yeah, You'd yeah. be able to to install it on as a standalone application on any operating system. There has been some tools such as, for example, Spectate. I think Spectate is a great tool, but it hasn't been developed for, for quite a while. Spectate is usually focuses on your pod and any networking components around your pod. So it, it will showcase your surface and your ingress. So it's a good way to understand the networking layer. However, it didn't have too much contribution in the, in the past months. So maybe the listeners will find it useful and will decide to contribute to it. I think that's going to be a great idea. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. There's a couple of tools I definitely haven't heard of there, so I'll bookmark them to look later on and I'll check them in the show notes. They're brilliant. Switching gears a little bit onto what you called application ops, and you talked about GitOps, ClickOps, and SheetOps. I'll say that very carefully. Uh, you and I off yeah. mic were chatting about that. <laughs> but could you, could you run through what you were meaning by that? Because I actually really enjoy this bit of the blog post. And you've talked about you know, the Kube CTL, you talked about sort of wrapping this to be more visual and so forth, which I think is really powerful. But then GitOps, ClickOps, and SheetOps, is it more around the methodologies associated with how developers interact with this config? Yeah, it, it's really about the techniques to deploy application. Now, if you look at kubectl, it's just a way to manage our resources in the cluster. One way we talked about the, the plugins and the wrappers, it's still manual labor. You still have to type your commands or your plugins. You still have to click through. With application ops, I really refer to an area where we automate as much of this. So the end goal of application ops is to automate the deployment of an application or the management of the resources in the cluster. And that's why I've, I've identified so far three, three main areas or three main techniques. ClickOps is uh, something which is very widely distributed by cloud service providers. And it's just a way to deploy application by um, clicking through a set of menus. It's one way. I think it's uh, leveraged by an experience such as Heroku, for example. Just mm -hmm. click through, your application is going to be deployed. It's a very powerful DX. As a developer, like you really don't care what's happening underneath. Click through application up and running. However, with, with this kind of tooling is some of the questions such as how do you do rollbacks? How do you do, mm. how do you store your configuration? Can you redeploy any past configurations? All of these are questions which need to be thought about when using ClickOps yeah. technique and maybe creating a mechanism for any of those issues. And the, the, second, the second area, which kind of transitioned, like some of the rollbacks and historical usage, uh, it's a very nice transition to a technique such as GitOps, because GitOps really thinks as the Git repositories as a source mm. of truth of how you want your application to be in the cluster. And what I really like about this technique is that the delta between my local terminal and the cluster is just one PR. So mm. whatever I deploy yep, within nice. my, my terminal, I just PR it and then is going to be in the cluster straight away. It's, it's quite a powerful model. But as I mentioned, some of the problems with the ClickOps that we've, uh, we've encountered, with GitOps, we have a version state of the cluster. And that's a very important thing. We can, we can do rollbacks. We can do roll forwards. We have always a state of our cluster in the history of, um, of our commits. And that's really a, a, a very different way to think about how you manage the state of a cluster. Before, yes, it should be versioned, but now it's it's versioned in a more native way in a way. It's it's coming out of the box with, uh, with GitHub's or GitLab. It's it's there. So mm -hmm. uh, it's a good way for us to further leverage how do we do um, rollbacks and store yeah, nice. our clustering. Yeah, and I think the last thing you mentioned was SheetOps. It's actually <laughs> a 
referring to Google Spreadsheets. It's a new initiative which has been developed earlier this year. I would like to say that all the puns are intended when I'm talking about this tool. <laughs> However, if you find to be a tool um, to be moved forward, please contribute. So SheetOps is a way to control your cluster's resources through using Excel. Their mission is actually to replace YAML with Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> so <laughs> here is the, the main question. I've heard many developers complaining about YAML, for example, and <laughs> yeah. being quite bothersome and so forth. Yeah, now yeah. you have a chance to replace all the YAML <laughs> with Excel. <laughs> so nice. again, that's the mission. Of course, it's, it's a fun kind of project and it was developed around that. But what it really outlines is the fact that we can integrate any tooling with Kubernetes and to manage mm. the cluster state. And that's the, that's the underneath idea we need to see. Like Kubernetes is really a good way to diversify how you can and would like to deploy to your cluster. Yeah, yeah. So we've seen different, different techniques. We've seen different abstraction layers. But what really needs to be leveraged is the um, configuration schema, which is declarative in Kube. And we can really um, leverage that further to automate any of the processes that we want. Yeah, something yeah, you and I were chatting sort of just casually before we began, Katie, like you were talking a lot about abstractions, like getting the abstractions right and then putting the APIs on. I think that's something that Kubernetes has done really well and probably the CNCF as well, the whole community, right? I think that's mm -hmm. probably, I'd like to get your opinion here, but do you think that's one of the driving factors of the success of Kubernetes and the CNCF? I think, I think so. I think we're talking about the abstraction layer. Introducing an abstraction layer over Kubernetes has been extremely easy and effortless for our time. Mm -hmm. Of course, it wasn't like from the beginning, but moving forward, we really could see a system where all the components would be talking to each other transparently. We would not have anything underneath the hood and we could follow the request, which goes, for example, to the API server, from the API server to the scheduler back, then it goes to the mm -hmm. control managers. We really can understand the full root of any request we have. And from that, we because we have transparency, um, we can introduce abstractions. Because if you know what's happening underneath, you can abstract and you can kind of pick and choose mm, what's important for you to configure. Yes. So from that perspective, I think it's it's been quite a powerful tool throughout. And I think there has been many ideas around Kubernetes just becoming a, a standard when it comes to, to a platform. Mm. I think, yeah, there was an idea, I think Kelsey Hightower mentioned it, was that we're not going to think about Kubernetes anymore moving forward. We now, Even now, we're thinking about techniques on top of Kubernetes. So which yeah. means that Kube itself is actually becoming something as standard as an operating system, for example. It's there, mm. it's stable, it runs. We just need to care about the applications on the layers on top of it. So from that perspective, I think it's been quite a success, successful project. Yeah. yeah, good insight there, Katie. Something actually, again, you and I were chatting about earlier on was the the evolution of the cluster API, for example. I know you've done a lot of work mm -hmm. in this space and that sort of, you mentioned it's like a treating the cluster as a resource. And as we're now like pulling up from like the traditional you know, cattle versus pets was, was a container focused, right? One container, we now treat that sort of as, as, a, as cattle rather than pets. I'm guessing like with the abstraction moving up to sort of the cluster now, is, is the goal or one of the goals maybe treating those clusters as cattle effectively? Yes, I really hope that's going to be the case. I think now we've been treating, or even at the moment, like many teams are treating their clusters as precious things. They yeah. can be they can be incorporated in like Lord of the Rings or something like that. It's, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. a very, <laughs> very I've been there, Star concept. Trek, right? I love the Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so at the moment, this is the state. 
when you have something which is precious, which you really think about how can you fail over, how can you make sure that uh, a disaster recovery process is it's defined from to scratch. All of these things are, are important. But the idea which I think the community moved towards now is how can we move that importance of a cluster? How can we make sure that even if you lose a cluster, we're going to be up and running with minimal ease? And that's why I think there's been a lot of uh, movement towards making the cluster deployment easier, making it more, well, when talking about destruction, making it possible to, to different cloud providers. And there is where Cluster API has been quite successful as well. And that's why I'm actually a, a very big fan of the tool. I think it, it develops or it actually opens very um, good opportunities. So with Cluster API, we have one interface to deploy our clusters to many cloud providers by using the same manifest. But the most important concept that it introduces is thinking of your cluster as a resource, like generally as like a resource in your, in a, like as a deployment or as a pod, is the same kind of concept. When you have a resource in the cluster, you can you have control. Well, you have control managers on top of it, but you can recreate it. You can all different versions to it, you can delete it. It's all of these mm. operations you can do on top of your cluster. So from that perspective, it's a very powerful concept. And with Cluster API, I've been um, I've been mentioning the GitOps model, and one of the latest thing I've been concentrating on and um, trying to enhance it and distribute it to the community as much as I can was the integration of Cluster Ops with uh, GitOps. So mm. <laughs> all the ops here. Yeah, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> So how can you do cluster operations by leveraging a mechanism such as GitOps? How, mm -hmm. And from that perspective is with cluster API, we can have our cluster defined in YAML manifests. Mm -hmm. If you have YAML manifests, you can introduce a configuration manager on top, such as Helm or Customize, which mm -hmm. means you'll be able to template all of these resources. And once you have a configuration manager on top or a templating layer, that means that you could use a technique such as GitOps very easily. And it, it, well, the templating layer is optional, of course, but it's a good way to further customize clusters for different regions. We don't want just one set of set of manifest to, to be individualized. If we can template it, why not? So yeah, yeah. we have our manifests templating, and then we can use um, a tool such as Argo CD or Flux at the moment to, to do GitOps. So at the moment, one of the demos I'm doing is how can we visualize our resources for the clusters in Argo CD. It's quite mm. a scary view because we have cluster API introduces uh, quite a couple of new resources. It's actually five of them. But you have, you have machines, which are going to be instances. With instances, you have machine sets and machine deployments, very similar to replica set and actual deployments in Kubernetes. You have the concept of the control plane, which is going to define your um, master sets. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a very powerful, I think this has been a good movement because we can do rollbacks to our control managers so we can actually scale up and down and even change the version of Kubernetes we run in a, in a rollout version. So it's been, it's been quite a powerful tooling, but yes, we can integrate it further with, with something as GitOps. Yeah. Mm, very nice. And I guess that sort of, that management equity falls in very much to the infrastructure operator persona. It's something else they have to look after now. So before, I presume they're probably using something like Kind to spin up mm. their clusters. And now the, the, the abstraction really would move to something more like cluster API. It wouldn't necessarily be for the application developers or application operators to know too much. Exactly. I think when we talked about the visualizing, we could visualize an application or a deployment very easily. 
but you can never ha really had a good visualization of your underneath like actual clusters. You can have your nodes, that's fine. But then, for example, if you if you roll out a new version of, uh, if you have a cluster, for example, in AWS, it doesn't matter. You have it there, you can see our instances, but if you're rolling a new version of Kube, how do you see that? How do you actually know that that instance is up and running? How do you know mm. that the version of Kube is the same on, the all, mach on the all machines if you're in the migration process? All of this is difficult to, to visualize at the moment. With Cluster yeah. API, because we have resources around your, your instances, you'll be able to visualize your cluster in a tool such as Argo CD because you can see all of your resources. You'll be able to mm -hmm. see the state of your resources as well. That is an instant win when it comes to really visualizing and how that graphical representation of, of the infrastructure. Yeah, very nice. I think the understandability all through my career when I've done DevOps things, that being able to understand, build that mental model is critical mm -hmm. to me doing good work. So I think this is going to make it that much easier, isn't it? I hope so. I'm rooting for this project to move forward. <laughs> right, I'll definitely I'll put the, the links in the show notes so interested listeners can then follow your work. And I know you've got some demos that wouldn't translate too well to podcasts, but definitely worth looking on YouTube and so forth. So I'll put those links yes, in. Yes, so please. wrapping up, Katie, what's, what are you most excited about working on in the future? Oh, I think my current role, I'm actually quite excited about it. Being in a fintech organization and introducing concepts such as cloud native tooling, it's, it's challenging, but I think this is going to be quite an exciting product to work on or even project to, to deliver. I think currently with, when it comes to the cloud native tooling, they're very widely used, for example, by, by startups, by companies which like really focus on tech, but when it comes to other industries, it's still crawling. It's baby steps at the moment. But I think a good use case to actually see a successful fintech running on cloud native tooling is going to be quite exciting. So I'm actually quite excited about that overall. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we're going to deliver that and get get it working. But I think it's going to be a very good use case to further show how powerful the entire CNCF tooling, mm -hmm. well, tooling landscape is. Very nice, Katie. This has been awesome. If folks want to follow you online, what's the best way? Twitter, LinkedIn? Both of them. I am available on Twitter and LinkedIn, um, as well as I'm writing quite a few blogs around all the tooling I'm exploring or new ideas that I have and I would like to transfer them to, to the community. So I'm going to be on Medium as well for forever or more insightful blog posts. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I love the blog yes. posts. Are fantastic. So I'll definitely link to a bunch of them. They, you can go sort of much deeper in a blog post, can't you, than, yes. than talking sometimes. Awesome stuff, Katie. Thanks once again for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great chat. Thank you, Daniel. I'm so happy to be here again. So it's been a great, great chat indeed.